we're back, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. Alan, are you ready to get to going? Yeah. (coughs) (laughs) Something went down the wrong way. Sorry. Wow. Unbelievable. That's what... Anyways. All right. Moving on. Moving on. Um, So... Um, yeah, we're going to have a good episode of this week. I can already guarantee you. And I will tell you why the reason this is going to be such a great episode is because it is an episode that is of the sons of history. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't yet do us a favor and subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's, uh, on Apple podcasts or Spotify or whatever, subscribe, leave us a rating and a review. You know what I just noticed? I noticed that, uh, now Spotify is allowing, uh, ratings and reviews. I, I didn't know that they were allowing that. Uh, I thought they all did, uh, ratings and reviews. Isn't that a, it's not a common thing. Yeah, I mean, you would think that more of them would do that, but uh, apparently that is not the case. The only one that I have ever noticed having the rating and review is on the Apple podcast, uh, So, which our ratings and reviews are, are quite good. Now, if you haven't yet and you're a fan of the show and you haven't left a rating and review like on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor. A five-star review would be fantastic. Um, now surprises on the show. You may have been surprised to see something, uh, last week, which apparently you are seeing again this week, which is a lovely photo by my good friend, Alan. What is going on? I did not mention that last week. With what? What photo? The photo behind you. You've never had that before. Uh, this is not a newborn baby. So I can only imagine that this is one not your child, or two, is your long-lost child. Well, okay, look, this is a family photo, so or a family show, so I thought I would, you know, uh, lighten up the place with a nice, you know, family photo. I think it looks nice, don't you think? So is this like a family photo that is not your family? It's sort of like you go to Kirkland's or you go to Hobby Lobby? Look, I don't have a family to, you know... Uh, you know, I got Who Star Wars. I have Star Wars for crying out loud. So I got to have liven it up a bit. So Yeah, but that that's your own personal childhood. Whose childhood are you capturing right there behind you in that frame? All right. It's uh, that little brat from Willy Wonka. Okay. All right. Well, that is, that is really bizarre uh, that you would have that. I don't need an explanation for why you have it. I don't need an explanation for anything. I trust that whatever reason you have is I it, no, it no, makes no. sense. Uh, no, I look. This was this is a family show. I, you know, I didn't have any other pictures. It was I just happened to have that, and I was hey, you know what? I'm gonna frame it. I didn't think anyone was gonna sit and uh, take notice like you would. I mean, no one has ever said anything about my statues, my Star Wars, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica. So here we go. <laughs> I will tell you this. Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. And you have no idea what I'm referencing. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to move on. Um, I will go ahead and compliment myself. Alan, this is not me. This is not my mother. This is not anybody I know personally. But uh, a recent article that I wrote for the Epic Times' magazine, American Essence, Got on the cover. This is the second time, man. This is the second time I've gotten on the cover. 
Uh, and it's about uh, somebody that you and I have discussed, I think a couple of years ago, uh, Major Taylor, uh, the guy who was the, the world champion cyclist back in the turn of the 20th century. So uh, if you get the American Essence or if you don't, you can always uh, Google American Essence magazine and then get a subscription and then possibly uh, get this one and, and read my story. Or you can go online and read it as well. Did you want to follow up with a congratulations? I don't think we discussed Major Taylor before because I'd never heard of Major Taylor before. No, we we did. We did. We uh, remember, I think it was, we started in October of 2018, and I want to say it was either that following February or it was the February after that one that we did uh, our favorite, it was Black History Month, so we did like our favorite sports figures, and so Major Taylor uh, was... One of the ones that I mentioned. So I thought it was just, his story is really fascinating. Um, interesting, the first time I ever ran across his name was from that Hennessy commercial a few years ago, which was actually very well done. I think that was, the, that might have been the one that I, um, that I mentioned the boxer. Uh, I think he was from Houston or Galveston and he had just been Galveston. Pardoned. Yeah, Jack Johnson. Yeah, I think that was the uh, that weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah. It probably was. It probably was. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our guest is going to be on the show. He is out in Dublin, Dublin, Ireland. So that is that is my fear right now is that I am during conversation with Desik and I am going to slip into an Irish accent and embarrass you, me and our guest or irritate him uh, to no end. So Keep your fingers crossed that I don't do anything like that. I will, uh, no, yeah, don't worry about that. I figured you might go into your Scottish. How, how can you tell the difference between a Scottish and an Irish? Is it like, is it like New is York? Is this a and, joke? Is it like New York and Baston? You know, because uh, you know how you can tell the difference between a New Yorker and a Bostonian, don't you? The uh, New Yorker and a Boston. Go ahead. New Yorker has more of the, oh, like, hey, I'm from New York, you know. But Boston, they're more of like a car, you know, like I get in the car, you know. See, you want, I, you want to go to the I can always, I can always uh, differentiate between the Scottish and the Irish by the R's. So the Scottish is like, oh, right now, right? And then with the Irish, it's like, oh, right now, you know? So they have the new, like, a boot, you know, it's almost like a Canadian thing. And you know what? I'm probably like irritating a lot of the, the Irish and, and the Scottish listeners that we have, which we will probably have uh, predominantly on for this episode. Yeah, well, just so don't, just, hey, just don't irritate our guest because that that would not be good. Yeah. That, but speaking of uh, famous Irishmen, uh, my friend Kent Matthews, he ran across these. Look at this. Uh, this is like shortly after the assassination of JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, a famous Irish American. Um, God rest his soul. Anyways, I am also wearing green. You seem to be wearing green as well. Uh, Negative. Good thinking. Although last week, that's not green. Uh-uh. No, that's what like, is that? That's like a brownish. I think. Oh. I don't know. Like with with the zoom. With the zoom, it looks like it's like a, a forest green. I grabbed it out of the hamper, so I don't know. 
Well, good for you. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get on with the program. Our guest is Des Eakin. He is a historian and journalist after spending several years covering the Ulster Troubles, which we will touch on, I guarantee you. Uh, He rose to become deputy editor of the Belfast Sunday News, or Belfast Sunday News. He worked as a journalist, columnist, and eventually political correspondent for the Sunday world until 2012. Now, He's written several books, including Ireland's Pirate Trail, A Quest to Uncover Our Swashbuckling Past, Hell or Some Worse Place, Cancel 1601, uh, Stolen Village, Baltimore, and the Barbary Pirates, which was shortlisted for the Argosy Irish Nonfiction Book of the Year and for, this is wild, Book of the Decade in the Borgash Energy Irish Book Awards. And his latest, the one that we're primarily going to be talking about, uh, I really slipped into that southern southern accent, primarily going to be talking about, uh, is The Lion's, Lion Keeper of Algiers, How an American Captive Rose to Power in Barbary and Saved His Homeland from War. Now, this is going to be, uh, I think, a very we don't, enlightening... We don't talk much about the Barbary Wars. Yeah, no, we haven't. We haven't. And it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people have never even heard of the Barbary Wars. And, you know, if you're if you're a Marine or you know someone who's a Marine, you know the part about uh, from the shores of Tripoli. Yeah. That's Tripoli was a Barbary, uh, Barbary uh, nation. And that's when uh, uh, William Eaton crossed the uh, North African coast with some Marines and some uh, mercenaries. War auxiliaries, whatever you want to call them, and uh, they they took over parts of uh, Tripoli, so on the shores of Tripoli. I think the I think the city is called Darna or so, or Darna or Derma, something like that. Well, it is uh, the, the that whole era is is very uh, interesting. I mean, that's sort of your your start out of necessity of the American Navy um, under Jefferson and and gets everything started. So. Uh, it's it's going to be a fun conversation, and we are looking forward to talking to Des, and he is on the line now. Des, how are you doing, man? I'm great, thank you, and uh, in very good form. Thank you, thank you for inviting me on the show. Great honor. Hey, we're we're happy to have you. Um, I will yeah, say too, this. It's too bad that we didn't have you uh, here last uh, weekend, since it was uh, St. Patrick's Day. It was St. Patrick's weekend, and uh, we all had great fun, and... Uh, Last this time last week, we just uh, Ireland just defeated its old uh, rival on the rugby uh, pitch. So um, I'm in much better better form now than I was this time last week. Um, so um, we were we were all having great time. If you'd interviewed me this time last week, it would have been a very interesting interview, but probably not the most coherent. Oh, that's okay. By the time we finished our conversation, I think I was a bit on the. Uh, I had a little too much Irish whiskey, so. <laughs> There we go. And and uh speaking of uh Ireland and everything and your and your honor does, I've got now we can't say the names of these places, but it's a it's a famous drink made out in Dublin. Um so here's to you. Um, I don't think what I think think what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. No, I think uh, I think maybe I'm not participating the way I should have because I kinda Went with the martini today, so I am having tea. So. <laughs> I, I'm the party party pooper official. So, uh, Des, 
I will just say that I, I thoroughly loved your book. Um, the intro being introduced, uh, to a, an American from way back when early America and an American hero, uh, as I, as I note in, uh, my review that I did for the Epic times, um, it was a real pleasure, not just to read the book, but also to be introduced to a, a new American hero. And I thank you, uh, for writing the book. Uh, before we get into the Lion Keeper of Algiers, I do want to uh, give you an opportunity to give give a bit of your backstory. I did mention that you were a journalist. How did your career uh, get started? Well, I started off in a local newspaper, uh, one of these um, very small uh, newspapers in, in uh, town in County Down in Northern Ireland, and um, I got a job in a big city partially just uh, through accident, literally an accident. I was covering a hot air balloon trip uh, across Frankfurt Loch. And uh, when we got to the other side, there was a freak wind blew down and blew us into power cables. It wasn't, there was nothing anybody could have done about it. It wasn't a pilot's fault. Luckily, nobody was hurt, but it shorted out the entire area. Uh, lots of flashing, banging of um, electricity. Um, luckily, we managed to scramble away from the wreckage completely unhurt. And um, the first thing I did, instead of sort of phoning up my home and telling people I was all right, I phoned in the story to the newspaper because I knew this was a big scoop. And as a result of that, one of the reasons uh, I was able to get a job in the big city, uh, so move up a notch. So I went to uh, work for a paper called the Sunday News in Belfast, which is now defunct. But um, it was at the height of the troubles, and it was pretty... Uh, Pretty nasty for a time. There was uh, there were bombs going off all the time. There were shootings, and uh, we were working. We had Sunday paper, so I had to go out and do report the troubles on uh, a Saturday night, which was one of the big, the most busy nights for things to happen. So um, it wasn't too pleasant, uh, but luckily um, there was uh, nothing happened to me personally. So. Uh, after about five years doing that, we moved to Dublin, which is the, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, which is relatively peaceful, uh, just because I wanted to raise a family in more peaceful uh, surroundings, and have stayed there ever since. Um, fantastic. Well, I'm uh, I'm happy that you are safe, and I think we're all blessed that you are safe and that you've been able to uh, put together a number of books. The most recent, The Lion Keeper of Algiers. I can't encourage people enough to to get this book. It's about a man by the name of James Cathcart. I believe I'm saying that right. Uh, so who is James Cathcart and how did you come across this story? Well, can I answer the second question first? Um, I was researching a book called The Stolen Village, uh, which was about a pirate raid on a town, a village called Baltimore in County Cork, not to be confused with your Baltimore. Um, and uh, pirates had sailed all the way up from North Africa uh, and landed this little port and abducted nearly all the villagers, took them away to Algiers and sold them on the market there uh, as slaves. And um, I was absolutely intrigued by this story. And as I was researching it, I just stumbled upon the story of James Cathcart, who was uh, an American, an Irish American, captured in a much later era. And um, he was uh, he was abducted, taken to Algiers, but managed to rise through the ranks of power from a grunt worker to the highest position that an outsider could have in uh, Algiers. And um, 
he was privileged to be able to uh, help to seal a deal, a peace deal between America and uh, Algiers. And uh, he, he was to have a chain of bars. We owned a chain of bars, pubs. And um, he also had his own ship, which was absolutely a remarkable story for somebody who's on free. He was a hostage uh, all this time. So this intrigued me totally because I've always been intrigued with the sort of stories of fish out of water stories, culture clash stories, where people were taken out of their comfortable environment um, and dumped somewhere in the alien culture to them, uh, a completely different uh, country, different climate, different language. How do they cope? Some people can't cope, others rise above it the way Capcart did. And that's what intrigued me most about it. So I decided I was going to write a book about Capcart, but I had other projects along the line, so I had to keep postponing it and postponing it. But then when the coronavirus uh, uh, lockdowns came, I had no excuse left, so I just wrote the book. And it, it was, it's really strange. It just seemed to trundle along with its own pent-up energy. I just could not stop writing it. it was a, you know, sometimes you get writer's block, sometimes it's difficult. This story just told itself. And that's always a good sign of the story. Second question, or sorry, the first question was who is James Cathcart? Will I go on with that? Yeah. Um, James Cathcart was um, Irish. He was born uh, Irish-American. He lived uh, Ireland at a very early age. He was born in County Westmeath in Ireland. He was sent away to sea by his family at age 10, which is absolutely remarkable. His uncle was a sea captain. He took him over to America. Uh, where he learned uh, skills of seamanship. Uh, started off as a cabin boy, just a young lad. But he was there just about the right time for the uh, for the American Revolution, for the War of Independence. And of course, he signed up for this. Uh, he became a midshipman. And um, he was apparently, according to some reports, he was the youngest midshipman to, to serve in the uh, Revolutionary War. I'm not sure if that's true, but um, he was certainly one of the youngest age 12 at the time. He uh, served under a privateer called Seth Harding, who was one of the most prominent privateers fighting on behalf of America for its independence. Uh, Capcourt was captured while on board this uh, Harding ship, and he was put into a prison hook uh, in New York. And uh, uh, conditions on that were pretty horrible. There's a couple of different accounts on what happened next. Some people say he uh, escaped and made his way across country. Others say that he was just uh, uh, he was uh, captured again by the uh, English. But either way, he ended up fighting for the Royal Navy um, for the last year of the war. Uh, how this came about, nobody's quite sure, but it looks likely that um, because he was born in Ireland, which was at the time under English jurisdiction, they regarded him as uh, English and or as uh, British, sorry, and that he had to uh, fight for uh, for monarch and country. So he, this, I don't think this was his own choice. So he ended up uh, when the war ended. He was uh, he's a young guy. It's 17, 18. His life is ahead of him. He signs up as a merchant seaman uh, on a ship called the Maria, bound for Spain. And uh, he's uh, while he's in Boston, he meets two Italians, uh, and he gets on really well with them. And it turns out that these two are going to play a crucial role in his uh, life in Algiers. So he sets up uh, from America 
Um, as I say, he's excited. He's all thinking all that all his nightmares are behind him. The war, the prison hoax, and sets off across the Atlantic. But he never gets to. Uh, well, he's off the coast of uh, Portugal. Sees a strange sail on the horizon. Turns out to be an Algiers corsair ship. Corsair is a term for Mediterranean pirates. And uh, at the time. Uh, there was no declared war between uh, between Algiers and uh, America, the infant United States, and everybody assumed that uh, American sailors were safe going into the Mediterranean. But the Algerines, as they called them, had decided just unilaterally that they were going to launch this war against America. They were going to capture American seamen and hold them to ransom. So this was a complete surprise to everybody. There had been a bit of um, uncertainty surrounding Morocco, uh, another Barbary state, um, in the year before. But anyway, they captured him. Um, he was the first Cathcart was the first man to be captured by uh, the first American to be captured by by, by the Algerines, and there were many more after him. And um, it was quite uh, quite a strange experience. Uh, first of all, they would ransack the ship take over the ship. Then they uh, took him over by boat to the Algiers pirate ship. And one of these weird customs that they had in Algiers was as each person, uh, each of the Americans boarded, uh, they were pinched. <laughs> the top doors pinched them for good luck. So uh, they were sort of moving around the ship, getting pinched to running this sort of gauntlet. Um, they were, uh, all the clothes were stolen. They had to uh, wear um, just basic clothes, uh, hand-down clothes that the Algerines had um, had given them, and they were thrown into the hold alongside some Portuguese people who'd been captured earlier. So they were on their way to Algiers. So they were getting pinched. Is that where the tradition started? Where if you don't wear green on St. Patrick's Day, you get pinched? <laughs> That's very interesting. I never thought of that. No, I wouldn't think so. I think it was very much in North Africa, but I, I hope you're right. Yeah, yeah, that would be very interesting. Uh, very, so when I uh, think pinched, when I think pinched, I'm thinking Goodfellas. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. He got he got pinched by the heat. That's where you have to, uh, you know, keep your mouth shut and don't rat on your friends. Ah, I didn't realize that. Pinched means uh, you keep uh, quiet. Yep. Yeah, beautiful. So when I was reading the book, um, I started mentally making comparisons to rick in the movie casablanca and you bring that up relatively early in the book too um which i thought was really cool because i was like yeah this is like the fictional character rick in the movie casablanca where he's you know just this this guy who runs a bar and he you know tries to help people out um and so readers who are you know possibly interested in in this book uh will find some you know some comparison there with something that, that they, that they do know. Um, what are some of the ways that, cause I, I just mentioned Rick, but what are some of the ways that he is comparable to the fictional character that a lot of people here in America love? Right. Well, um, the, when he got to Algiers, uh, it took a while, but he managed to get a chain of pubs and, um, he liked Rick in Casablanca. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, you regarded him as a hero, uh, that is, uh, Cathcart, and I'm cool with that, but 
uh, to me, he's more interesting than a hero. I think he's a, just a, an everyman uh, cat card. He was, um, he's had many flaws. Uh, he was no angel. He was uh, somebody with, uh, he was ambitious. He had uh, an eye for the main chance. He had, um, uh, he was not afraid to use bribery and corruption to get ahead. Uh, but despite all that, uh, he was able to uh, to uh, help his uh, fellow Americans in, in Algiers. And one of the ways he was able to do it was through uh, his bars. He used his bars as food banks, uh, quite uh, it, it, not illicitly, uh, but very, but secretly. He would um, his uh, fellow Americans weren't in any great shape. They were being kept in uh, prison where they were treated very badly, made to work at the docks, and they were starved and malnourished. And uh, Cathcart managed to get them fed. He made sure that they had a, a square meal every day, which enabled many of them to stay alive. Uh, so to me, he's very much like Rick in that he's, um, it, he's charming, great people skills. Um, the, the idea of Cathcart's bar, it was called the Madhouse, uh, it's strange he was called that before he took it over. Um, but at first, many um, similarities with Rick's Cafe America in uh, in Casablanca, because you can imagine it's the same sort of sultry location, you know, shadows of palm trees up against the whitewashed walls, spies, diplomats all circulating around in the bar, um, deals being done in the corner, and uh, you've got to figure. Rick in Casablanca, you've got the figure of Cathcart in, in Algiers, circulating, making sure, making sure everybody has a drink, making sure that um, everybody's happy with their food fights being, uh, breaking out, uh, just diffusing trouble with his personal charm, and um, meanwhile, making sure that things are being uh, doing quite a moral thing in, in feeding his, um, his comrades and making sure they stay alive. I was going to actually throw in also that when when I was reading about him, I I pictured more of uh, Joseph, the son of Joshua, when he when he was a uh, slave in e or captive in Egypt. But um, um, I agree, it's, it's very very similar. In fact, the stories are so similar that at first I thought this is going to be one of these myths where people, um, you know, take a biblical story and adapt it to to a different setting. But no, it's it's absolutely well uh, documented, and uh, this rise to power uh, at the palace is just it mirrors the story of Joseph. Absolutely. Now, uh, Alan, uh, did you say Joseph, the son of Joshua? Yeah. You mean the son of Jacob? I yes. Think? Yes. 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 There yes. you go. There you go. Uh, look, yeah, let's. Uh, we might need to edit. No, that, no, know. we're not editing it because this is one mean? of the I, rare. I, this is one of the right, rare you know opportunities what? that I get in my lifetime to correct anything that you say. When you, when you screw up, I'm going to remember this, okay? And I'm going to throw it back right at you. <laughs> I, I so won't. yeah, all right. You en absolutely yeah, enjoy the enjoy this one. Enjoy this one. All right. So, all right. Let, let's uh, let's talk to our guest wise here <laughs> all right so um now the the barbary pirates so um you had let's see morocco algiers tunis tripoli i don't know i don't know if egypt was considered a barbary pirate nation or a barbary nation um but i know most of them were uh vassals of the ottoman turks i don't know about morocco but what was and you and you can correct me on all that but what was their relations with the uh, European powers such as uh, Spain, France, England, and eh, 
and, and as well as some of the lesser powers, because I know they went to war with the Netherlands and Sweden. But I mean, what what were the relations like throughout the uh, uh, decades or centuries? Well, you're absolutely right with your description of the the, the Barbary. The, the name Barbary uh, derives from Berber, so it's really a reflection of the western part of uh, North Africa. Um, it's uh, the, the states involved. There was four of them: Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli. Uh, more or less uh, mirroring uh, Alger- Algeria, Tunisia, Libya today. Uh, Egypt wasn't so much involved. Uh, the, uh, Morocco was independent. It wasn't Barbary state, but it was uh, it was independent. It was a, a, a kingdom. Um, but the other three were uh, vassals of the uh, Sultan of uh, the Ottoman Emperor. But they were very much semi-detached, and uh, their ethos was very much piratical. They had um, a pirate ethos. And this began back in the early 1500s when the Barbarossa brothers, uh, freelance pirates, uh, cap- recaptured um, Algiers from the Spanish very unexpectedly and held on to it. And they offered it to the Sultan of, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, there, for a while, the, um, the, the, the Algiers was ruled jointly by pirates and by uh, the Turkish militia. But uh, that, that changed as, as time went on. So at the time we're talking about, um, Algiers had settled down a bit. It had a very stable uh, government at this time. When this, uh, the day of Algiers, the ruler was Mahmoud, who had been there for quite some time. But it, um, so they settled down into a sort of tributary state where it was a bit like a protection racket, you know, rather than um, uh, actually stealing ships. Uh, from European powers and then ransoming back, ransoming them back. They decided to just cut out the middleman and just get the uh, powers to pay them directly tributes. So most of them signed up to this. Uh, Britain uh, signed up, France signed up, uh, later Spain signed up, and there was a lot of money involved. I mean, uh, you would have uh, you would have uh, people paying um, fortunes just to have protection for their ships. But the real thing, they, they, but they had to keep uh, the piratical uh, practice because otherwise nobody would be afraid of them. So they had to be at war with somebody all the time. So they were at war with Sweden, they were at war with the Netherlands, they were at war with um, different people at different times. The other uh, Corsair states like uh, Malta, for instance, uh, Naples, that sort of thing. Um, so they, they, they would get paid for that, but every time there was a change of government, every time there was a change of ruler, uh, all the bets were off again, and the new ruler would say, okay, that was then, this is now, what are you going to give me now? So the whole dealing process would start all over again. The strange thing about it was that the, if the European powers had banded together, they would have easily crushed this menace in no time at all. But this was a time of... Um, uh, where they all wanted to get an edge on trade on the neighbours. So they were quite happy if Algiers, for instance, started uh, um, in, in capturing somebody from France. Uh, say, for instance, the British would be quite happy because that would give them a trading edge over France. So they were all at each other's throats, the European powers, in a bid to get leverage over the other one. And then America comes on the scene, the newly independent America. Um, in 83 and up until this time 
they've had protection from France during the War of Independence uh, due, due to their alliance with France. And before the war, of course, they had uh, they were part of the British Empire, so they had um, protection from Britain. But now, after the war, they had no protection forever. And um, America was, uh, it was, this was very early days of, uh, of the states. They didn't have a proper central government at this stage. This was the, um, uh, it was the Confederacy Congress, where um, central government didn't have the power to tax all the colonies. Different colonies were taking different positions on different things, so it wasn't very easy to get a decision made about foreign policy. So the uh, the question of what to do about the with Barbary pirates was something that was very much debated. Uh, they uh, put forward a trio of people, very remarkable people uh, in America, to deal with the problem. There was Ben Franklin, there was John Adams, and there was Thomas Jefferson. And it's a sign of the sort of disunity and uncertainty of the Americans that each of them had a different uh, approach to um, to the idea of uh, how to deal with the Barbary pirates. Uh, Jefferson was very much in the hawk. He wanted uh, to build up a navy very quickly and uh, go and uh, teach these people not to mess with America. But the trouble is, America didn't have a navy. In 85, the Continental Navy had just had been disbanded. In fact, coincidentally, just the same summer as uh, Capcourt was, uh, was captured, uh, they got rid of the last uh, ship of the old Continental Navy. So they were completely without a navy, wouldn't have another one until. 97 uh, for a long time. So, so uh, Jefferson wanted to do that, build up the Navy. Uh, uh, Franklin just decided it'd be best to avoid the Mediterranean altogether. That way, there's no problem. You don't sail into the Mediterranean, you don't get um, to pay tribute. Adams was um, more pragmatic. He said, Yes, I agree with uh, Jefferson that we need to build up the Navy, but in the meantime, we don't have the Navy, we're going to have to pay tribute. So um, that was his stance on it. So the three men didn't really uh, get along on that basis. And uh, first of all, they had a bit of trouble with Morocco, uh, what an American ship was captured, um, but that they were able to get that back and uh, uh, agree a treaty with Morocco. But Algiers was much, much harder, much harder not to crack because for two reasons. First of all, it's because they were looking for another enemy. Um, they always had to think of fighting somebody at any at, at all times. And secondly, because the British were actively, proactively trying to get the uh, Algerians to attack America, first of all, because they had a, a grudge against the independent America for obvious reasons. And uh, secondly, because they, they didn't want the Americans coming and uh, interfering with their trade in the Mediterranean, because the Americans have quite a lot of trade in the, American, in the Mediterranean, especially wheat. And if there was anything that they could do to keep the Americans out, they wanted to do it. So the, in one of these sort of hard to believe things, the British consul actually went to the ruler of Algiers in 85 and said, listen, these people are coming here to the Mediterranean. They have, have to go through the Straits of uh, Gibraltar. They're easy uh, meat. You can just, uh, they've got no navy to protect them. They're completely vulnerable. Take as many of them as you want. And it's quite extraordinary when you think that uh, people, you know, who shared the same sort of culture, values, language of America and Britain, that one, that Britain would be so um, so cold-hearted as to sort of encourage these captures. 
got they did and um, in 85 you had the Maria with Capcot on board uh, with six people on board captured then you had um, a second ship the Dopa um, with um, 15 people on board so by 85 you had um, 21 Americans uh, captured uh, and held hostage in Barbary in Algiers. Now I keep reading stories that there was or it was maybe alluded to the a meeting with Jefferson Adams, and uh, maybe it was the day of Algiers, or one of his diplomats. Um, do you know anything? I mean, was there a meeting with the three of them, or uh, was it just diplomatic? I'm not entirely sure on this, so I wouldn't swear to it. But I have a feeling it was Tripoli, and they it took part. It took place in London. It was the it was the one where they said that the re, you know they were saying why are you attacking us we haven't done anything to you and the response was you know you're infidels we are allowed to yeah I I read about this I haven't included that in the book so I wouldn't be terribly uh, sure about the uh, but I think more or less what your that sums up the conversation so it was a clash of uh, different ideologies uh, the uh, that was America's actual uh, approach throughout you know. We're not causing any harm to anybody. Why wouldn't we just come and trade freely? Uh, the Algerians were saying, you just don't get it, do you? This is the way things work in the Mediterranean. This is the way things have always worked. Uh, we ask you for tribute. You pay us tribute. What's the problem? And um, But the Americans didn't want to do this for one reason. They didn't have money. They were, after the war, they were completely broke. And the only way they could get money was through trade. And um, if they were allowed to trade, they could make money. Therefore, they could build. This was Jefferson's point, actually. That he was saying, I, people keep telling me we don't have enough money to uh, build up a navy, but we're not going to get money until we trade, and we can't allow, we can't trade unless we have protection for our ships. So um, that was his point of view. Um, so they, you had the, the these twenty-one Americans in Algiers. The government wanted to help them, but the American government, but really couldn't do anything about it. They, they could have actually ransomed them a, quite a, a, a small amount of money, but their stance, and it's a stance we recognize today, is we don't want to go into blackmail. If we start paying money, uh, we're going to be paying money all the time. There's going to be more people captured, there's going to be more demands. Um, so I'm not, we're not going to start going down that road. So the stance that Jefferson adopted was one of feigned indifference. He, um, he, he tried to back-channel a message to the captives that the Americans were trying to do as much as they could, but they couldn't be seen to be doing this. So they tried to pretend that they were indifferent uh, to the plight of the captives. Um, while, um, and, and, but the trouble is, from a captain's point of view, there wasn't a great deal of difference between uh, feigned indifference and genuine indifference. So the people, they, they got quite um, bitter. The captains got quite bitter about being, uh, they perceived that they were being um, neglected uh, by people at home. Um, Jefferson, though, was far from inactive. He actually had a... Um, he started to engage in negotiations with uh, uh, a monastic order called the Trinitarians. I'm not sure if I got that right, monastic or priests, whatever, something like that. Um, they specialized in um, 
ransom and captives from uh, Barbary. And uh, they were based in, in Paris. And he went to see them secretly and said, I've got a great, great idea. Why don't you rescue or ransom these people um, by yourselves, pretending it's sort of for a charitable endeavour? And we'll back channel the money to you so that you can, um, that way we won't be seen to be rewarding terrorism. But um, our, our people will get free. And it was actually quite a very good, uh, a good idea. But uh, the government didn't really want to know, and they delayed and delayed. And by the time they gave the go-ahead, uh, the French Revolution had broken out, and the Trinitarians, like all other religious orders, were uh, persecuted by the revolution, and that was the end of that. But it was a quite a clever idea. So what was it like, uh, speaking of the lions, um, what was it like in the prisons in Algiers and also who were the days? And I, I want to, uh, also mention, cause you said lions, like there were animals Mention the animals that would often escape into, <laughs> into the prisons. It was like, as if you're not in a bad enough spot, all of a sudden you've got some lion or tiger that, uh, you know, will escape. Yeah, this is, this is, uh, it seems funny because it can't, it can't be too funny for the people involved. Uh, the ruler would keep two young lions at his palace. Uh, he didn't like to keep them until they got too big. Uh, but when they got, uh, when they grew up and they got out of control, he would send them to one of the prisons where the, uh, where, where the uh, prisoners were kept, the hostages were kept. And they didn't treat them well at all. The previous, they put them into um, into cells uh, at these prisons and chained them up to the walls. And occasionally somebody would come near them and throw a, a bullock head or something like that into the, the animals to eat. They didn't get any uh, out into the fresh air. They didn't get any um, uh, proper food. Uh, nobody really cared about them. And every so often, a couple of them would yank their chains free from the wall and go rampaging around the prison. Uh, yeah, and people were getting killed. And the trouble was that the rules in Algiers was that were nothing belonging to the day the ruler could be interfered with without express permission from the day. So nobody was able to shoot these uh, lions as they rampaged through the uh, through the prison. They had to send a messenger to the palace, ask the day, is it okay to kill this lion? Yeah, sure. So uh, somebody would go back and then shoot the lion. Meanwhile, there were several corpses lying around. But they were just prisoners, so nobody cared. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter about them. That is bizarre. Yeah, yeah, it was bizarre. So yes, it was. Um, uh, Cathcart's time at the palace didn't last very long, about a year. It was reasonably good compared to his later career. Um, although he was, he was subjected to horrendous beatings. They had the punishment that they used in in Algiers was the bastinado. That was the usual one, um, which was. Um, Somebody would be hiked up, feet upwards, and uh, they would be hit on the soles of their feet uh, and on the stomach, and sometimes on the buttocks with a with a rod, a timber rod, and this would would be maybe fifty hundred strokes just for minor misdemeanors. And Cathcart got this um, several times, once just for reading, being caught reading a, a, a book, and uh, as a result, he didn't know when this punishment to come and he started to have some sort of uh, mental breakdown like uh, he called it by sentimental afflictions 
but I imagine it was probably depression. Uh, but he, he he suffered from this and um, had quite an episode before he recovered from it. But then a year on, he's taken out of the palace. He's, <laughs> we're talking about biblical analogies earlier. Uh, he was literally thrown out of the garden, expelled from the garden, and sent into this uh, horrific prison, which is called the Banyo Balik. It was called Banyo because they were former baths, public baths, and um, but they'd been converted into prisons. And uh, there were hundreds of prisoners being kept there in terrible conditions. Um, they, kept, uh, they, they spent the night there, but they were woken at three o'clock every morning uh, by a loud call from the, uh, the guardian of the prison, shouting sleepers awake. And they had to uh, assemble down in the prison yard and were marshaled down to the docks and to the quarries for quite, uh, um, it, it, it was very hard, grueling work, uh, shifting rocks from the quarries down to the dock, uh, carrying um, timber. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people were uh, disabled for life because the work was so hard. Yeah. Cathcart didn't fare too badly. He was apprenticed to a carpenter and ended up going around the different houses of Algiers uh, working with this carpenter. Trouble was that the, even despite this, this was a reasonably cushy end of the job. Despite all this, everybody, every Friday, everybody had to go to the, uh, the to a public works, to a sort of um, construction scheme, um, and, and, and work shifting rocks, carrying rocks. Uh, they were putting huge boulders onto sleds, and they had to push them uh, or pull them at the end of ropes. Uh, it was very sort of primitive technology, uh, all the time being whipped by uh, by overseers. So it was not an easy uh, uh, job by any means. Um, so Cathcart uh, had to put up with this for quite some time. He uh, managed to get a shift upwards uh, by, well, it was really by bribery and corruption. He got to know the, um, the guards in the prison. The guards were statists. They were Spaniards. They were called Corneros. And they were... Um, but they had their own operation going. They would bribe the prisoners, uh, or sorry, they would get the prisoners to bribe them uh, in return for not being, not having uh, certain punishments. Um, Cathcart managed to get a little bit of money, and he slipped this to the Carneros to get a, a, a transfer to a slightly more civilized prison uh, called the Banyo Galeria, and it was there that most of the other Americans were, and it was a much sort of um, quieter place. It, uh, it didn't have the criminal element. There were criminals in the other in the first prison as well as uh, prisoners of war. So um, he, uh, Cathcart was there at exactly the right time when there suddenly was a shortage of uh, captives, and they needed uh, people to fill the bureaucracy um, because um, there had been a there been uh, a mass ransoming, a ransoming of other nations. As a result of this, uh, Cathcart ends up. Um, uh, in uh, a place called uh, the Marine uh, Department of the Marine, under the Marine Minister, whose name was Hassan, who would later go on to become the day the, the ruler of Algiers himself. Hassan seems to have taken a, a shine to the young guy Cathcart. He makes him his um, coffee maker, which sounds that it's not a great job, but in fact it was a very good job because uh, everybody who came to visit uh, Hassan. Uh, the diplomats, uh, the visitors from other uh, Islamic countries. Tradition was 
they have to slip a few coins into the empty coffee cup after they're drunk. So this went to the uh, captives, um, just because of tradition. So um, Cathcart began to make a bit of money this way. Then uh, there was a plague hit our, hit our uh, Algiers, and people started to die in the marine ministry until there was practically nobody left apart from uh, Cathcart and uh, Hassan. And um, he'd been, meanwhile, he'd, he'd uh, shadowed Hassan's clerk at the Marine, who was one of the Italians that I mentioned earlier that he'd left in uh, Boston. Because of that, um, he was able to take over the Italian's job as a clerk at the Marine. And uh, Hassan was able to see him, how he worked and his skills. He, um, Cathcart, I forgot to mention, had language skills. He was great. He, uh, he learned everywhere he went, he learned a new language. He uh, spoke Portuguese, Spanish, um, uh, what else? Oh, Arabic. He spoke, he, he spoke Arabic as well. And he had great people skills. He was just very, what we call emotional intelligence. He was very good with people. So he got this sort of technique of being able to work with Hassan, who's he was an explosive personality, uh, Hassan. He was uh, he threw into he flew into tam tempers at the uh, at the, at the least uh, provocation, and uh, Cathcart was one of these people who was able to, you know, the way poker tellers or poker poker players can spot a tail, uh, a sort of little twitch of the eye or something like that that can show when someone's bluffing, um, or not bluffing. And Cathcart was able to tell when an explosion was on the way just through certain micro expressions on the on the uh, on the Hassan's face. So he was able to work very successfully with Hassan. With the result that comes Hassan finally in uh, in uh, 1791 uh, took over as ruler of Algiers. Uh, he brought uh, Cathcart along with him, and a year later Cathcart became clerk uh, to the day. The position was actually called Chief Christian Clerk. Um, now this was uh, a clerk, depends on how you pronounce it. Um, now this, it, it was actually quite a powerful position because it involved um, liaising with all the diplomats from other nations and advising Hassan on the um, on what approach to take. So he was actually quite a high grade, grade councillor. So you had mentioned um, Jefferson's, I guess, uh, diplomatic ploy, which was feigned indifference. Um, you have from everything just seems from from bad to worse. I mean, you've got these guys that are taken over, uh, thrown into prison. You got wild animals going nuts, killing people. Uh, then you have the plague that hits every once in a while. Uh, you've got the beatings. Uh, you got people more or less starving. Um, and then you've got, as you mentioned, like the British consul, Charles Logie, he was, he was out of control. He was a real jerk undermining, uh, the Americans, also the French consuls, but mention, talk about Joseph Donaldson and Joel Barlow. When I'm reading it, these are the American diplomats. To me, they almost seemed indifferent, uh, to the plight of these American prisoners as well. Yeah. Well, to, there's, uh, when Joseph Donaldson came, uh, he was the second attempt that the Americans had tried to negotiate a, 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 a treaty. They'd earlier uh, sent a man called Lamb 
to, uh, to try and negotiate a treaty, but he turned it way over his depth. It was completely, uh, and they were talking completely financially different, financially different universes, so that didn't work out very well. Um, when then in um, 93, before Donaldson arrived, we had this terrible uh, ramping up of, of the situation when the Algerians suddenly, without warning, went out and captured another 11 American ships, with the result that you had something like 120 Americans uh, in the uh, in Algiers. And suddenly, then the problem had increased in, in exponentially. So you had all these American captives who were born within the 21. Um, so uh, there was a new sense of urgency to the problem. So um, the Congress uh, got together, passed the Navy Act, uh, authorizing six frigates uh, to be built. And now this was specifically to counteract the Algerine menace. Uh, so the Navy, the US Navy, was formed on this issue and this issue alone. And it's interesting to think that they had this uh, clause in the agreement that um, that the six frigates could, could be built, but if uh, peace came to with Algiers, they'd all be cancelled again. So there'd be no navy. Uh, as it turned out, it didn't happen like that. But this was the background to it. And so we've got in uh, 1795, uh, Joel Barlow is appointed as the uh, as a representative in, uh, in Algiers. He's based in Paris. Uh, he's very much um, a literary figure. He's a very cultured individual. Didn't want to go to Algiers. He was quite happy in Paris. As you would be. Um, he didn't want to be separated from his wife, leaving his wife behind. So um, while he was getting ready to come, he took his time to come to Algiers. Uh, Joseph Donaldson was sent there as a sort of Sherpa to spy out the, um, uh, the what what was possible, what was not possible. Um, now it's. Um, at this stage, the ruler of Algiers was very anti-American. He had become so uh, disillusioned that he said, no, he didn't want to see Donaldson at all. It was only through Cathcart's uh, good offices that he agreed to see Donaldson at all. So Donaldson arrives in, in Algiers. He turns out to be um, quite a colourful uh, figure. He, was, um, he suffered badly from gout and found it hard to walk. And he couldn't have come to a worse place than Algiers because it was built on the side of a hill that was uh, to walk anywhere in Algiers is quite an effort even for someone who's fully able. And for a disabled man, it, was, uh, it must have been uh, terrible. So there's a great description by Cathcart about Donaldson arriving. He's dressed not for a hot climate, but for a cold climate. Yet before long, he's sweating. He can't uh, walk properly. The kids in Algiers are running around him and pulling at him, and he starts shouting at these people. He finally gets to the safety American uh, house where it has been laid aside for him, and uh, he goes in and he collapses on the sofa and he unleashes this, this uh, stream of uh, curse words uh, about Algiers and about everybody in Algiers. And there's a local man who didn't understand English and he asks him, um, What's he saying? And uh, Cathcart or somebody else says, yeah, he's just so glad to be here that he's said a prayer of thanksgiving. <laughs> and the local man said, well, um, well, he must be very devout <laughs> because the whole prayer was so, um, was so passionate. In fact, of course, it was a blast of cushions. But anyway, Donaldson turns out to be quite a, a chronoptious individual. 
he's uh, starts trying to negotiate a peace treaty, but he's not very imaginative, he's not very forthcoming. It's left up to Cathcart as the chief clerk to try and come between uh, uh, the days. Um, the day was asking crazy money, he was wanting 2.5 million uh, from the, from America. Uh, and uh, Donaldson was uh, willing to offer only a few hundred thousand. So they're not in, in, in the same ballpark at all. Cathcart doesn't give up. Donaldson keeps despairing. He keeps saying, no, I'm going to give up. I'm going to go home. Cathcart keeps on admitting, no, no, keep trying. Cathcart keeps going back and forward from there. The day gets angry with Cathcart and threatens to decapitate him, which he's quite capable of doing. And um, he says, at the very least, you're going to get 500 bastinados if you keep this up. Uh, he keeps going back. Cathcart doesn't give up. And finally, between the two of them, they work out a deal uh, which involves $650,000, which uh, in, in ship, uh, spares, and in hard cash. So, uh, quite unexpectedly, and thanks to uh, Cathcart, uh, the deal is done. Uh, the United States flag is saluted with a gun salute in, uh, in the bay. Um, Cathcart realizes that everybody's trying to sabotage this deal, so he reworks an existing treaty to try and get the, the treaty finished in time. Um, so it's done and dusted, um, they're ready to go. Joel Barlow, uh, meanwhile, is on his way. Um, as this is happening, the day is waiting for this money to be uh, delivered. Uh, the Americans have got $800,000 in credit in the banks in, in, in Europe, but unfortunately, they can't get the hard cash because Europe is being written apart by the repercussions of the French uh, Revolution. Uh, Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte, is about to uh, go to war. And um, all of Europe is, is engulfed. Uh, they go to all the different banks to try and get hard cash. The day wants hard cash, nothing else. And they can't get it anywhere. Um, they go back and forward, London, Portugal, wherever, in the Netherlands. <clears throat> There's no hard cash to be found. So the deal goes into abeyance. Uh, uh, the ruler gets more and more angry. He keeps saying, right, we're going to go, we're going to solve the, or we're going to go on the attack again, we're going to get hundreds more American seamen. Cathcart's very worried about this because uh, he hears uh, on the grapevine that back in America, word has got through about this, um, about this treaty being um, finalized. And everybody thinks everything's fine and dandy, that it's been, that everything's peaceful, that the Americans can be, can uh, sail into the Mediterranean quite safely. So they're starting to send uh, ships across into a trap. And uh, nobody knows about this in America. Everybody thinks it's, uh, that peace has been declared. And uh, Cathcart knows that, no, this, is, this isn't happening. The Americans are sailing right into, um, into the jaws of captivity. And uh, if he doesn't do something, these, uh, there can be hundreds more captured. So um, they work out a scheme between the day and Cathcart where uh, Cathcart, Joel Barlow is here by the stage. Um, he's arrived in Algiers. Again, he's, he's, he's trying to do things, but they're not working out. Um, he's trying to use sort of for old school diplomacy and it's not working with the, the, the ruler. Um, so they work out a scheme where by 
Cathcart, while still a hostage, can sail across to um, America to have a private meeting, to take a meeting uh, to a letter to George Washington. The day trusts George Washington as a man who will keep his word. So he writes a letter to George Washington to say, listen, this is what's happening. Uh, we're, uh, we're about to capture more Americans because you've backed it, you've reneged on your deal to give me this, to give me these ships and you need this money. So um, I'm sending you this letter as a personal plea um, to start um, to start delivering it, making good on your word. So um, Cathcart agrees to this. He goes to, he has his own ship. He fits it out himself as his own, own expense. And he sails off in May uh, 1996. Um, to sail across to uh, America and uh, deliver this message. This is a sort of dash to try and um, uh, to, to try and stop him by being captured. Um, so he heads off. Meanwhile, uh, the money comes through, um, and it comes through in quite a, a strange way, uh, in which the French consul comes to Algiers. Uh, he wants to uh, he he wants to borrow hard cash from the Algerian currency, uh, treasury. The day hands over hard cash to, uh, <laughs> to, to the French consul. The French consul doesn't want to walk around Algiers with this hard cash. He gives it to the banker to lodge. Uh, along comes Barlow, asks the banker for the same money uh, to borrow it on the strength of the credit that the America's built up. The banker hands it over. Barlow hands it over to the ruler. And it's exactly the same money goes back into the Algiers treasury again. So along with some other money, they're able to get enough to free the captives. So the captives are freed in July uh, 96. They, um, they, they go across to uh, uh, Marseille in France and um, quite a few of them have died at this stage. And um, uh, meanwhile, Cathcart has arrived in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, he dines with George Washington that very night. George Washington, um, is appalled to hear that things have got to such a state and the orders work to begin immediately on the um, ships and the spares that are needed to, uh, to, to get this treaty through. So Cathcart's great achievement, apart from saving the lives of so many people through his bars, uh, through his food banks at the bars, uh, has been to buy the United States nine months of extra time and stop the uh, Corsairs capturing more Americans. Now you can imagine an alternative universe in which he didn't do that. And if that it hadn't happened, uh, the Americans would have sold would have sent hundreds more seamen through the Straits of Gibraltar. They'd have probably been captured by the Algerian Corsairs. There would have been hundreds, if not over a thousand Americans uh, in Algiers. That would have dealt uh, a great body blow to the American morale. And uh, <clears throat> Uh, the, the what happened later would not have panned out the same way. As it was, Cathcart managed to get the, the peace treaties salvaged. He managed to get the, cap, the captives out and home uh, because he bought time for that. And um, as a result, America was able to got time, bought time to build up its navy. First ships began arriving in '97. Uh, and they were ready for action when uh, the first Barbary War erupted in um, 1501. So uh, <clears throat> they won uh, 
they won that particular confrontation at least quickly. And uh, that was a great boost to the morale of the new nation. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the, the phrase, the shores of Tripoli and the Maroons hymn, uh, uh, the shores of Tripoli. This was um, a reference to the first Babylon War. So uh, being able to have that victory over uh, over the Barbary states uh, led the framework for the second Barbary War. And as a result, um, the Americans did not get, uh, were no longer living in fear of the Barbary pirates. That was an end of an era as far as they were concerned. Now, did, uh, did uh, Cathcart have an influence in any way that uh, when we went to war with Tripoli in 1801, Jefferson's first year in office, um, did uh, Cathcart have an influence that prevented us from going to war with Algiers? And if and if that was the case, what happened in 1815 when we did go to war with Algiers? What happened was that uh, Cathcart actually been appointed as consul in Tripoli, so he was there for the uh, ringside seat where they started the first Barbary War. Uh, it, was, it was declared in quite. What happened was that uh, America was trying to make a deal. Uh, the ruler of Tripoli didn't um, want to do this. Uh, to, um, wanted more money than, it, than America was prepared to pay. As a result, he declared war in very dramatic fashion by cutting down the American flagpole, flagstaff, uh, at the American consulate. Um, Cathcart was told by uh, the ruler of Tripoli, um, we're, we're expelling all Americans, but you can stay if you like. And Cathcart said, no, not at all, and I'm out of here. So he went uh, I, 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 uh, out there, and um, he was instrumental in uh, organising the the conduct of the war. First of all, by trying to negotiate or, or trying to institute a regime change in Tripoli, probably the first time that it happened in American politics, but not the last. Uh, they wanted to try to unseat the ruler and uh, get someone else who was more favourably disposed towards America. Um, but anyway, um, the war. It, uh, I think it was General Eaton, this is outside the scope of my book, uh, walked, uh, marched across uh, Algiers, took a city, and was about to carry on to the capital, or sorry, went across Tripoli. Uh, and then a truce was, uh, uh, was negotiated, and uh, peace was, uh, was uh, arrived at. So that was uh, the end of the uh, uh, First Barbary War. The Second Barbary War happened in Algiers and happened under a new day, and they've just gone back to the old um, uh, techniques of ripping up peace agreements, the peace agreements that had been made before. As far as I know, Cathcart had no uh, part in that because he had moved on, first of all, to Tripoli and then to Constance somewhere else. Uh, so it was very much, uh, uh, it didn't last very long, the Second Barbary War, just. Um, few days, wasn't it? I can't remember. It's outside the scope of my uh, book, but um, it, again, it resulted in a, a resigning victory for America, and uh, it meant the end of the Barbary Wars for, for America. Well, Des, uh, it, it, it's a fascinating um, story. Like This guy just uh, plays such a significant role, and he, he gets no play. Um, he really gets no play. And when it, when it comes to just, uh, history being retold, uh, here in the States. And like I said earlier, uh, it's, it's great that you've put this book together. 
um, that you're telling his story. And uh, the, the book, again, is The Lion Keeper of Algiers. Um, thank you again for, uh, for writing the book, joining us, and, and we hope you had a, had a good time discussing uh, James Cathcart. I had a ball. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and stay out of, uh, stay out of those air, hot air balloons. <laughs> I'm never going to go and one again in my life. <laughs> well, we had a good time talking to you. Thanks again. Thanks guys. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, I got to say, if there's anybody that I have had a conversation with regarding the Barbary pirates or the first or second Barbary wars, it's, it's this gentleman. He seemed to, uh, he, he seemed to know that subject very well. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing that he's doing what he's doing because, you know, as we mentioned in the introduction, the first and second Barbary Wars, you know, people just don't know about it. And it's, I'm, thank God that we have a man like him, you know, writing about it and a very good story, very enlightening story um, to, you know, to get that story out. Yeah. And what's, what's pretty cool is that um, he's, he's Irish. He's over in Ireland and he is uh, covering a, a story that has substantial effect on what happened here in, here in America. Uh, so it's pretty cool that, that he's putting, putting that together. And obviously there is the, the Irish connection because like he was saying, James Cathcart is, uh, or was Irish American. Yeah. And you know, he's got like the American version of, uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I was gonna, I was gonna say, um, uh, the son of Israel because, uh, I, I know Jacob changed his name to Israel or something like that. So, you know, what probably would have been Easy, but you know Joshua. I got him kind of confused. I think he was on the that Charlton Heston movie. So that you know, you know the guy who played Joshua is married to Bo Derek in the uh, Ten Commandments. Is he still alive? No, no, no. He died. I don't know when, but uh, I think his name was John Derek. He played Joshua in uh, the Ten Commandments movie, the Charlton Heston one. Uh, but yeah, he was married to Bo Derek. That's how she got her last name. Interesting. Is she still alive? Uh, she is still alive. Although I haven't seen her in a movie since Tommy Boy, so I don't know how she looks now. You know, I uh, I don't like to put women on a on a scale of any kind, but if there was ever a ten, I think Bo Derek is a ten. Oh, there, were, God, there were quite a few of them. You know, my favorite, um, my favorite. All right, you know what? Forget it, forget it. Because if you're not going to go with that joke, I get it. I get. Then the we 10. need to move on. No, no, forget it. I am. Uh, I'm done with this conversation, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, did you want to add anything else? Yeah, you're acting like a little woke college student. <laughs> you're act, you know who you're acting like? You're acting like Veruca Salt right now. You want things your way, Daddy. Yeah. Well, that is that is true. That is true. Um, and yeah, I'm a. I'm a terrible person for wanting that. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our show to an end. Uh, in honor of our good friends over in Ireland, uh, go out and get you a nice uh, drink from Dublin. <laughs> and no, this is not a soda. So, anyways, or Alan, you can finish up your martini. I got uh, you know. I have the olive. You can't have a martini without an olive. <clears throat> Otherwise, you have a Gibson. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you done? Because I feel like I feel like I got nothing else to say to you. I think 
This presentation spoke volumes. It was a good conversation. And I, you know, I've always been fascinated with the Barbie Pirates Wars, the Wars of the Barbie Pirates. And, you know, good to have someone with with the knowledge to give us that uh, that information, which, by the way, did lead to colonialism in North Africa, I might add. And it did end... It did end a lot of the uh, the Barbary pirate activity and slavery that uh, that went on. Slavery, slavery on the uh, on white uh, Europeans. All right, man. Well, it was good to see you. I hope you have a have a great week. Whatever it is that you're going to be doing, I'll I'll fill you in as things as things go along. So, uh, but yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, good job on uh, on lo- on finding uh, this gentleman. Um, a good author. Uh, hey man, he found me. Actually, they're his his publicist or their the publisher did. So oh okay, well good good. So I'm, I can imagine we'll be getting uh, more of the more good authors here. We got plenty. All right. We All right. got yeah we got plenty. So all right, buddy. Well, I love you. To hello, uh, say hello to your mother for me. I will talk to you later. I will. Love you too, man. Say hello to your parents. So. <laughs>